0: If you will take your Bibles and turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, the first 17 verses of the chapter, Luke chapter 7, 1 through 17. As you make your way there, I will begin reading there in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 all the way down through verse 17. So let's listen as we hear the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We read, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, "A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people." And this report about him, uh, and this report about him, spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for your word. We ask now that you would give us understanding and insight into these. Verses in which we look at this day. Help us, Lord, to be changed by them for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that some of you remember back in the day when you could you used to be able to go to a movie theater and watch a movie. I don't go to the movie that often, maybe four times a year or so. Uh, but it's still something I, I really enjoy. I enjoy going to, to the movie, to, to, to watching Um different movies. And it's one of those things where you go, it's one of the ways that a a theater will keep you coming is by the seemingly never ending cycle of previews at the beginning. And there's usually a lot of them. There's usually a lot, usually so much that I've, I've made it through my popcorn before the movie even begins. But these previews are a way to generate anticipation for what's coming and therefore it keeps you coming back and coming back. Well, as we we make our way into Luke chapter seven today, we continue to follow Jesus as he carries out his earthly ministry. In one way, these stories can be seen as a preview of sorts. Here in chapter seven, we have at least four interactions Jesus had with various people, a centurion, a widow, Later on, we'll see next week John the Baptist and then a woman who washed Jesus' feet. The first two that we look at this morning, including the centurion and the widow, are in essence healing miracles. These accounts tell us a lot about Jesus, what he's like. They tell us about the nature of his kingdom, even what we can expect. In some ways, these stories are like previews into the consummated kingdom that we will one day enjoy. They're here to preview, in a way, how we can be prepared to anticipate the fullness of God's kingdom and the realities that that Jesus came to accomplish for us. We know that these stories are true, they're historical accounts of true events that took place. These healings really happened. This man raised from the dead happened. But even as they happen, they are pointing to a greater reality concerning who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. They prepare for us, they they prepare us, I should say, for a greater work that Jesus will do. They're a preview of sorts pointing to a greater reality. Well, brothers and sisters, it's important for us, we know, to see who the real Jesus is. And in order for us to do that, we are given these answers. These illustrations, if you will, as he interacts with different people and of people coming to him and him going to people. And we see him uh, in his full-orbed earthly ministry here. And as he ministers to these different people, we see that he is telling us something about himself and about the nature of his kingdom. Here in the two accounts that we have before us today, we see two important truths. That Jesus presents. Two important truths that we'll see today. Number one, we see a faith that Jesus commends and we see an authority that Jesus reveals. These are the two things that come from this passage. Really, they could be two sermons, but you're getting two for one today. What a blessing. A faith Jesus commends and an authority Jesus reveals. Let's first of all consider a faith that Jesus commends. We see that in the first seven verses in the healing of the servant of the centurion. As Jesus made his way into Capernaum, we are introduced to a centurion who heard about Jesus. We see that there. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings, he goes to Capernaum, and now a centurion who had a servant, literally a slave, who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued him. And it says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. So there was a centurion. Who is this centurion? What's important about him? A couple of things that we should know. First of all, is that he was a Gentile. We know that he was a Gentile, a non-Jew, and that he was an officer in the Roman military responsible for a hundred soldiers. That's the name centurion. It also meant that he was likely a man of wealth and great influence. What we know about this man here is that he had a servant, a slave who was sick to the point of death and really unheard of in this day and time when it comes from a centurion. This centurion actually cared deeply for his servant. So what the text says, that he, he had a, a, a servant who was sick to the point of death and he cared deeply for him. He cared deeply. We, we could translate that... Um, different ways, that, uh, that he esteemed him, that he valued him, that, he, that this servant was dear to him. And having heard about Jesus's previous miracles and the ability to heal, he sends a delegation to Jesus seeking help for his sick slave. Long story short, Jesus eventually heals the servant, and he does so based upon the faith of the centurion. Look at verse 9. Just jump down to verse 9 for a moment. We read there in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, after he was conversing via the Jews uh, with the centurion, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Imagine that. Jesus marveled at this man. He marveled at his faith. So what was, what was it that was so marvelous about it? About the faith. A couple of observations we should make about this man's faith. First of all, it's a faith that was conscience, conscious of his true condition. It was a faith that was conscious of his true condition. Notice how the centurion seeks Jesus. He sends some of the elders of the Jews to go and ask Jesus to heal his servant, which is kind of a side point. You have this Gentile that apparently has a very good relationship, uniquely so, with these Jewish elders and they go on his behalf to seek out Jesus, to to ask him to consider healing the centurion's servant. And notice what they say, look at verse four. So the elders, the, the Jewish elders go to Jesus and notice what they say in verse four. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. They pleaded with Jesus earnestly saying, notice what they say. He is worthy to have you do this. He is worthy to have you do this for him, why? For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue for us. Notice their argument. Jesus, you should heal this man's servant. Why? Because he is worthy. Why? Because he loves the Jewish people, and he basically funded our Putting Down Roots campaign for the synagogue. This is how they approach Jesus. And sadly, we still see this a prominent approach to jesus today don't we sadly many think that this is how christianity works i'm a good person therefore god owes me something this was the argument that the jews were making on behalf of the centurion these jewish leaders revealed that they don't understand that grace the compassion the power to heal is never deserved is never earned or owed it is given Friend, if this is your approach to Jesus, I just encourage you to realize this is not how grace works. Grace is unearned favor. The kindness and generosity of God is something he never owes us or something we never deserve from him, but yet in kindness and in mercy, he willingly gives it. Well, well, Surprisingly, even though they make really a bad argument for Jesus to heal, he goes with them. It says that in verse 6. Jesus goes with them. And as they make their way towards the centurion's home, not too long before they get there, the centurion is made aware of their pending arrival, and he sends out some more friends to encounter Jesus before he gets to the house. Another message. And here's the message in verse 6. Jesus... uh, um, and Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Brothers and sisters, notice the contrast. I am not worthy of you, the centurion says. Compared over to that which is the message of the Jewish elders He is worthy to have you do this for him. The centurion's assessment of his condition, of his status is, I am not worthy for you to have you do this, not even for you to be in my home. He doesn't point to his favorable treatment of the Jews, which he apparently had a good relationship with. He doesn't point to his putting down roots contributions for the building of the synagogue. He doesn't point to anything good in him at all. The only thing he points out about himself is his own unworthiness. He was a man of wealth, a man of authority, a man of influence, and he offers none of that as a reason for Jesus to heal his servants. He's showing himself in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount to be poor in spirit. He's humbled himself, realizing that he doesn't deserve anything coming from God, and yet he's pleading for mercy, not based upon his good behavior, not based upon his good works. Brothers and sisters, if we are ever to come to Jesus as the one who can meet our need, it must always be that we come to him in humility. While it's likely the centurion didn't fully realize who Jesus was, he did know that he must have been blessed of God in some way. He must have been a great prophet. He, must have, he had heard of all of his miracles and such. And as he sought Jesus' help, he understood that God owed him nothing. And yet was placing all his hope on Jesus' authority and power to heal. And this is the kind of faith Jesus calls us to, isn't it? The kind of faith that recognizes the reality of who we truly are before God. Notice Jesus says it was a faith he had not even found in Israel. He marveled at this man. This man's faith. It's so just again an important word for us for how we approach the Lord. We don't come to Jesus based upon our good works, based upon our actions, based upon our deeds as if God owes us something. Before God we know that our righteousness is even like filthy rags. Centurion understood his true condition that, that God owed him nothing and he comes in humility before him. Friends, when we come to the Lord, we do so in humility, recognizing that there is nothing worthy in ourselves to deserve God's favor and kindness. And we cast ourselves upon his mercy and power to be generous as he chooses. That's the first thing that we see about his faith. It's conscious of his true condition. Second, it's a faith that's centered on Jesus. That's obvious, but I mean, we, we need to say it. All the way through this account, it's evident that the centurion's hope was resting not in himself, but upon Jesus. We heard, when he heard that, that, that Jesus was near, he sent to him. Look back at verse 7. Uh, Therefore, he says, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Notice the language he uses there concerning Jesus. He's recognizing the authority that Jesus has. He says, but say the word. You don't even have to be in my presence. I'm not even worthy of you being in my presence. Not even worthy of you to be in my home. You just simply, you're so great. You're so powerful. You're so worthy. Just speak the word and from a distance you can heal him. And he's putting his hope, again, his hope is in Jesus. His hope was resting fully on the authority and power Jesus possessed. And yes, we know that Jesus marveled at this man's faith, but part of the reason Jesus marveled was due to how clear the centurion was on what and who the object of his faith truly was. Friend, if you're going to exercise true faith, the kind of faith that Jesus commends, the kind of faith that Jesus marvels in, then it must be a faith marked with humility, and it must be a faith rooted and centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This must be central to our response to the work of God. And then number three, it's a faith not only conscious of his true condition, not only centered on Jesus, but it's a faith that crossed social and ethnic barriers. The centurion was a Gentile. He was a man of position, of privilege, and authority, and yet he had faith. Notice Jesus' statement. Jesus points this out. He he, he identifies this reality that this man is, that this gospel, that this work of Jesus, the power of Jesus is crossing ethnic and social boundary. He said, I don't even see this in Israel. He's recognizing this is outside of, of Israel. He's recognizing the distinction there. And I think here we see both ethnic and social boundaries didn't hinder Neither ethnic or social boundaries hinder the centurion from trusting Jesus, nor do these ethnic and social boundaries keep Jesus from going to the centurion. Friends, this is an account, this is just yet another statement, another account, another announcement that the hope we find in Jesus Christ transcends all boundaries that may exist in this world. The centurion is an illustration that Jesus came to reach all kinds of people, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. Jesus doesn't refuse this man because he's a Gentile. He doesn't refuse him because he happens to be serving an oppressive regime. Ethnicity didn't bother Jesus. He responds to this man and marvels at his faith. Even a little slap in the face to the Jews. I don't even see this among you, my own people. Friends, it's a good word and reminder to us when we look at this account on whether or not we exclude others based upon their cultural social identity. Do we intentionally or unintentionally make distinctions as to whom we will serve and minister? As a gospel people, no such distinctions can be made. We certainly can't ignore the differences that exist in society, in the world, but we need to understand that even in those differences, they should never be gospel barriers. It's a word I think that we need to hear today in such a time marked by divisions. Do we, so, do we show partiality? Do we make assessments of who we will love and serve based upon whatever reason you want to come up with, based upon whatever barrier, based upon the neighborhood they live in, based upon their political affiliation, their skin color, on and on we could go. And my answer to that is I think we often do. It's often subtle. But I think we all have internal biases, I know I do, that often hinder who we speak to or who we serve. And that wasn't the way of Jesus. Jesus. You see here with Jesus that he was able to cross ethnic, both ethnic and social barriers, and that is a good word for us to hear and see as we follow Jesus. But when you consider the centurion's faith, I think what we see here is, a, is, is the true expression of faith and humility and, and how it's available for all kinds of people. Notice the servant wasn't healed because the centurion was worthy. The servant wasn't healed because the centurion had some uh, good deeds to to pose as, as the reason. Rather, the servant was healed because the centurion pleaded for grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the realization of our own unworthiness combined with wholehearted trust in the one who is worthy. And friend, I just ask you, do you possess that faith? Is that where your faith rests today? Are you trusting more in yourself and in what you think God may owe you or not owe you? Are you understanding like the centurion understood that I have nothing to give God except a mess? I have nothing to give God because I am an unworthy person. And and even on my best day, it falls way short of God's holy standard. And I recognize that and I just reach out to trust Jesus. I know he's my only hope. And he is the one who can secure my my relationship to God. And he's the one who has the power to do that. Is that where your faith is resting? Or is it resting in something or someone else? Friend, I would just encourage you to come in your unworthiness, to put your hope fully in the one who is worthy. Faith is a gift. But it's a gift that God gives to many people across many barriers. We see this commendable faith. It's a faith expressed humbly. It's a faith that's centered on Jesus. It's a faith that's available for all kinds of people. Brothers and sisters, as a church, this ought to be the kind of faith we ought to be calling people to express. As we seek to build relationships and do evangelism and and, and minister to people, this is what we need to be telling them. Do not trust in your own worthiness. Trust in the one who is worthy. Trust in the one who has the power. And that is only in Christ those of faith that Jesus commends. Number two, the second thing that we see from this account is an authority Jesus reveals. And we see that in the next account in verses 11 through 17. Soon after the event with the centurion, Jesus heads to a town, to a town called Nain, south of Capernaum, probably 20 miles or so, to the southwest. And there along with his disciples and a, a and large crowd that followed him, they make their way towards the town gate. So you just imagine Jesus with his disciples and a big crowd following making their way to this town. And as they make their way to the town gate, they see and encounter a funeral procession. A man had died and was being carried out for burial. He was the, we're told, the only son of his mother who was also a widow. First she had lost her husband, now she had lost her only son. And as Jesus sees what's what's taking place here, he was, we're told, moved with compassion. And he interrupts this funeral. He approaches the widow. He tells her, weep no more. He touches the casket or wherever the the device the body was laying upon, and he tells the young man to rise. And he does. You see that in verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Of course, verse 16, you'd expect this to happen. Fear sees them all, and they glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report goes about the whole area of Judea and the surrounding country. So what is it about Jesus that we see here particularly? We see his authority. Several things that we see about his authority in this passage. First of all, it's an authority fueled by compassion, When he sees the grief of the widow, he was grieved by her grief. This funeral was likely the same day that the son had died since it would have been considered unclean for a body to remain in the town beyond a day. So that means most likely that this widow and the people with her were at the height of fresh grief. And we also need to understand the situation the widow was facing. In this day and time, she would have had little way or no way at all of providing for herself apart from her husband or son, and now she had lost both. So not only was she alone, she was likely facing all kinds of other problems, even financial problems and difficulty. How's she going to live? So her situation moved the heart of Jesus. Now, now this account is different than the previous account in a couple of ways. First of all, it involves a death, not just an illness. So... The servant the slave was sick to the point of death close to death this this son in this account had died so it's different in that way and jesus initiates this miracle the widow didn't the widow wasn't reaching out for him she didn't even know he was coming to town most likely and he initiates this he's moved her suffering touched him he didn't know her he, speaking from a human perspective, she, didn't, she hadn't reached out for his help, and yet he sees her need and was moved by compassion for her. Again, just kind of a side application, but what an example for us as Christ followers to consider. No, we aren't in the, in, the, in the place of being able to raise people from the dead, but we are called to emulate Christ. Like Jesus, we're called to move towards the hurting, to move towards the suffering, to express empathy and compassion. It's one of the most Christ-like things we can do. So you see this authority that he has, it's, it's being fueled by compassion. It's just not a, a, a lifeless authority. He's, he's, he's moved by this woman. He's touched. And he moves toward her. Number two, it's, it's an authority unrivaled in power. Jesus interrupted this funeral in a big way. I mean, you can just imagine the scene, this crowd coming out of weeping, of grieving, and Jesus approaches and tells this widow, weep no more. And then he raises her son from the dead. Merely by speaking words. From our vantage point, we know that death is a reality we cannot change. It seems so final when we experience it. But that's not the case with Jesus. In these two accounts, he demonstrates that not only is he Lord of the living, he is also Lord over the dead. He has the authority to speak seemingly effortless words and give life. Friends, the greatest obstacle we all face is death. But in Jesus, it's no obstacle at all. The thing we see from this miracle is a foretaste of a greater reality. Because of sin, we all will face death. Yet Jesus is victorious over death. He died upon the cross himself. He died, he experienced death and yet was raised from the dead showing his victory and power to defeat it. He died not for his sin, but for our sin. And he was raised from the dead to show his authority to give us life. He is our ultimate hope because in Jesus, death does not have the final answer. Following the raising of Lazarus from the dead, back in John 11, verse 25, Jesus says, "'I am the resurrection and the life. "'Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live. He's demonstrating that this is an unrivaled authority, an unrivaled power that he has, that he is Lord over death. Not just interrupting funerals, he's in the business of interrupting all of our funerals. He's going to raise us all because of his finished work. All who are in Christ. Third point about authority is that it's an authority that points to the future. As one writer put it, the miracle of raising this man from the dead is yet another commercial of what Jesus will do in the end. He was raised for our justification, and he will raise us new. As John describes the new heavens and the new earth, he says in Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. Friends, Luke gives us this account not only merely to tell us a great story from the past of how Jesus turned a funeral into a celebration. He records this because Jesus is the one who has the final word, not death. He is the one to whom we must look. He is the one to whom we must put our hope. He is the one who raises the dead and who will one day raise our bodies from the dead and transform us into his likeness forever and ever. This is the hope that we have. Yes, we see a faith that Jesus commands, but we see it's a faith rooted in him because of the authority that he possesses. And he demonstrates that authority over life and death in these two accounts. And he shows himself to be the one to whom all of us must look and all of us must put our hope. And friend, if you're here today or if you're watching via our live stream and you're not hoping in Christ, he is your only hope because he is the one who has all authority He is the one who can raise the dead and cure the sick and and give sight to the blind. And all of these are physical things that he did, but they point to spiritual realities as well. He can give sight to the blind. He can raise the dead, dead hearts that are enslaved to sin, and he can make you new. And for all those that he does that for, he will raise you new when he comes again. Well, friends, one of these days we may make it back to the movie theater and the previews will scroll again. But the best preview that you will ever see is recorded for you right here in Scripture. You don't have to wait. It's not something made up in Hollywood for your entertainment. It's a message sent from heaven for your eternal life. Luke 7 is a foretaste, a preview of the day when all of us in Christ will be restored again. All our sickness and all our death will be no more. And the one who secures that is Jesus. Is he the object of your faith? Is he the foundation of your hope? Or are you looking to something else? And Luke tells us, Where we must look so let's do that let's look to christ let's trust in him and let's find our great lasting hope rooted and found in him alone let's pray together father we thank you for this word and this inspired word that you give us to show us the truth of who jesus is we thank you father that you reveal to us through these true accounts of healings and resurrection True realities, but, Lord, true realities that point to a greater reality of who Jesus is and and what his kingdom is about. Father, my prayer today is that you would instruct us by it, but, Lord, that you would move us. That you would move our hearts and that you would cause our eyes to behold these wonderful, glorious truths of who you are. Father, thank you for giving us this word. Thank you for reminding us about what faith is for instructing us as to what genuine faith looks like and how we can be responding to the truth of who Jesus is. Thank you, Father, for showing us the reality of who Jesus himself is and what he came to do. Father, my prayer today is that we would be a church known for where our hope rests, that we would be a church known for where our faith is centered, and that we would be a church known for communicating that glorious news about who Jesus is to all our community and beyond. So, Father, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for these reminders today. Encourage us by it. Strengthen us by it. Transform us. Confront us. Call us to faithfulness, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.